Well, today as we uh, continue in our study on biblical manhood and womanhood, we're going to be discussing a very important part of it. And I will say that uh, I'll say to the parents that have children in the room, I'll defer to you to use your best judgment with whether or not you would like them to be in this particular class today, because today we're going to be talking about uh, gender confusion as well as homosexuality. These are two very important topics that fit well within biblical manhood and womanhood that we need to address. Scripture talks a lot about it, and we don't want to avoid it. In fact, we want to hit it head on and look at it. So we're going to be actually concluding our study on biblical manhood and womanhood today with this topic. Next week, we will be doing kind of an overview with some discussion of the last five months. And then in early February, that first Sunday of February, Lord willing, we'll begin a new topic altogether. So today I want to look at this subject under four headings that you'll see on your handout on the table. The first is we'll deal with gender confusion, which will include transgenderism. We'll also look secondly at homosexuality. We'll look at what I've called the heart of the matter. What's really involved here with these two topics. And then finally, we'll look at a biblical response. Well, a 2013 Rolling Stone article read, by the time Coy Mathis was four years old, he knew one thing was for sure. He wasn't a boy. This article described a child in Colorado who was convinced, yes, at the age of four, that his physical body did not match his true identity. At first, his parents were confused, but over time they grew to accept their son's professed gender, filling his closet with pink dresses and other feminine clothing. Well, that was 10 years ago, and transgenderism has continued to grow by leaps and bounds since then, so that now an estimated 700,000 people in this country alone identify as transgender. That is, they claim a a gender identity that's different from the sex assigned to them at birth. Of course, over time, this has led to numerous debates. I'm sure you've seen many of them on various news outlets, including bathroom legislative bills, workplace policies, and other locker, locker room issues, all because people don't want to accept their God-given gender that was given to them by Almighty God. This secular view that allows for transgenderism believes that sex is only biological and that gender is psychological. That is, you either have male or female chromosomes, anatomy and hormones, as the biological component, but gender, on the other hand, is different. Gender is psychological, which pertains to your inner sense of identity. Matt Merker writes, it's socially defined and so includes things like behavior, appearance, clothing, roles, etc. Many theorists argue there is no necessary correlation between physical, physical sex and gender. In this, they are diverging from the biblical view. Now, we've discussed in previous classes that sex and gender are really one in the same and can't be separated. The secular view, however, believes this is wrong and uses these separate definitions to support their ideology. 
popular secular slogans abound, such as, anatomy isn't destiny, or, get this one, sexual orientation determines who you want to go to bed with, and gender identity determines who you want to go to bed as. This secular ideology is that your, your sex, your sexual orientation, and your gender identity are fluid and all separated from one another and not necessarily correlated. The Bible, however, firmly rejects this view and misunderstanding. Our gender is in direct correlation with our sexual biology being created as male or female, and it's a gift from God that should be cherished and lived out in a way that will bring honor and glory to the one who made us. Well, why does gender confusion even exist? In other words, why do people really struggle with this? Well, the simple answer is the fall, which brought sin into the world and caused a distortion of not only body but also mind. We know the fall affected our bodies, and now sickness and death are part of this life as a result of the curse. But the fall not only affected the outward, it also affected the inward. Some would say the heart. The Bible speaks to this. Jeremiah writes in Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Another verse, certainly important for our lesson today, Proverbs 14, 12, we read, there is a way that seems right to a man, but the end is the way to death. So as we see the effects of the fall on our bodies and our hearts, now there's really very little regard for the body and for how God made us. Transgender thinking teaches people to think of the body as really a blank canvas to do with what you want. This absolutely rejects the biblical view that God made us in his infinite wisdom in a wonderful and marvelous way. The psalmist writes, for you form my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. Psalm 139, 13 and 14. You see, transgender ideology is sinful because it's rejecting God's given gender for that person. To reject your God-given gender then is to ultimately reject God's lordship as the sovereign creator of the universe, including your, lo- including your own life. It's, it's, it's like this. It's like you're shaking your fist at God, saying, I don't like how you made me. I know better, and I'm going to do everything I can to change that. At the heart of the matter, and we're going to deal with this a little bit later today, at the heart of the matter really is idolatry, which we know is a very serious offense to God and a defiance of the second commandment. But let's shift our attention from gender confusion now to homosexuality or what is more commonly called now same-sex attraction. Homosexuality has been around, as you know, since biblical days and until recently has been seen as wrong, sinful, and shameful even. Uh, Even in the United States of America in 1962, All 50 states criminalized 
homosexual activity. However, later in that decade, by the late 1960s, with the sexual revolution and the free love movement, everything began to change and unravel. By 2003, in just 40 more years, all remaining laws against same-sex sexual activity were invalidated with a court case of Lawrence versus Texas. That was in 2003. 2004, Massachusetts became the first state where LGBTQ Americans could marry. And then in just 15, excuse me, in just the next 11 years, by 2015, homosexual marriage became legal in all 50 states. 2021, a report came out from the United States Census Bureau that stated there were 980,000, that's almost 1 million, same-sex households in America, with 58% of those being married. What has happened? How have we gotten to this point? And I'm going to point us back to Genesis 3. You may, seem, you may say to me, Kevin, what do you mean by that, Genesis 3? Well, I mean when Satan came in the garden to Adam and Eve, he began by asking the question, did God really say that? Did God really say that? And he's doing that today. The evil one comes to people to question and doubt God's word. Did God really say that marriage is between man and woman? Did he actually say that homosexuality is a sin? Did he really only create two genders, male and female? And furthermore, who is God that we should even believe him? Well, let's look briefly at an understanding of marriage. As we talked a few weeks ago, I'll I'll deal briefly with this today, but Matt Merker suggests the following definition for marriage. It's a covenantal bodily union of one man and one woman, open to the gift of procreation, symbolic of the relationship between Christ and the church. So we see here that marriage is covenantal. It's a huge part, huge part of what marriage is and should be. In being covenantal, it's intended to be exclusive and loyal and permanent, dissolved only at death. Now, certainly there are legitimate grounds for divorce, although they are rare. But Jesus said in Matthew 19.6, what God has joined together, let not man separate. You see, covenants, as you look at the Old Testament, covenants were initiated by who? By man or by God? By God. Covenants were initiated with man by God and thus were to be permanent. Similarly, the marriage relationship is a covenant made not only before one another, but also before friends and family and before God and should be treated with utmost respect and reverence in keeping with the covenants that God has made. Secondly, marriage is a bodily union where two become one flesh. This means that a marriage is normally consummated as conjugal rights are given and sealed when sexual intercourse is undertaken. It's a union of man and woman that goes far beyond uh, the physical, but also goes into 
even more so, right, the emotional connection with one another between man and woman. Thirdly, marriage is a union of specifically one man and one woman. Why is this? Well, because God said so. Genesis 1, 27 and 28. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And then he blessed them and he said what? Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. So part of the goal, certainly not the only goal, but part of the goal of marriage in normative cases was the bearing of children. How can this be fulfilled in any relationship pattern other than male and female? Also, and this is important here, a marriage can only exist between a man and woman because marriage is a picture of two distinct parties in covenantal union. What do we mean by distinct? We mean different. Two different distinct parties coming together in covenantal union. What's the point here? Well, we see in the covenants of the Old Testament, God initiated the covenants, and they were also between two distinct parties. Who's that? It's God and man. Distinct, different parties. In this way, the marriage relationship is to be like the marriage relationship or the relationship, we can say, between Christ and the church in covenantal union. Even as we look at uh, sex between a Christian man and woman in covenantal marriage is pure, sweet, and right. Every other kind of sexual activity is not biblical. For example, sexual activity between two women or between two men or Uh, even between a man and woman outside of marriage, is wrong. It's absolutely and unequivocally against the teaching of Scripture. Sex outside of the covenantal bounds between man and woman is really not biblical sex at all. It's like trying to hold a basketball game on a golf course, right? The golf course was designed for what? Golf. Now, you can try to play basketball on a golf course, but it's not the right function for that golf course. Basketball on a golf course is not really basketball at all. In the same way, sexual activity that's not between a man and woman in the confines of covenantal bounds of marriage is not really sex at all. Well, how do we know that that homosexuality is wrong? How do we know that it's wrong? Several scriptures speak to this. Uh, Leviticus 18.22, you shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. Such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. How important are those verses? Such were some of you. But then Christ came into your life. And made a difference. Listen to this. Here's an important question to think about. Is it just 
the physical act of homosexuality that is sinful, or is it the desire toward homosexuality that's sinful? It's an important question, and we're going to talk about it more today because it's a relevant question, even in the church today. How would you answer it? Well, the Bible makes it very clear that it's not just actions that are sinful, but it's the desires that precipitate the actions that are also sinful. Ephesians 2.3, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were, thus, were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Titus 3.3 says that in our sin, we all were slaves to various passions and pleasures. What about Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount? You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Is Jesus talking about just the outward, just the action? No. He's talking about the desire within that's sinful. To to desire a woman that is not your wife is sinful. Similarly, to desire something that is not in God's created order, we could say, is also sinful. For example, for a man to desire another man is sinful. For a woman to desire another woman is sinful. It's not just the physical act of sexual activity. It's also the desire, which may or may not lead to more. Let me put it this way. We know that, we know that anger is wrong, don't we? Anger left unchecked can lead to murder. Therefore, the sixth commandment is broken not only in the case of murder, but when we're angry toward our children or our spouse. It's the intent that wells up that then may or may not lead to action. The reason I'm elaborating on this is that it's rampant in our cultures as Christians today. We have, and you've seen this, we see homosexuals homosexuals proudly acting out their desires publicly and flaunting their ideals to young children. There's a national coming out day now that's celebrated every October I was alarmed when this past October I read that it was actually celebrated on some Christian college campuses. Can you imagine? Even in our local library system, uh, there's books that should not be there. You see, there's a, there's, a, there's a movement now to take away everything that's biblical. There's a way to distort everything that's biblical. They've even changed the Christian symbol of the rainbow, right? And it's compelling us as Christian parents to have conversations earlier and earlier with our children. To the parents in the room, we must remember the warning in Matthew ten sixteen: Behold, I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. Be you therefore wise as serpents and harmless as doves. We have to be careful. There's books in the children's section 
of our Greenville Public Library System. There's one entitled, Heather Has Two Mommies. To my dismay, the book is not only checked out, but there's actually nine people waiting for it to be returned so that they can check it out. In a particular school district in this country, they have added more than 100 books to classrooms that feature depictions and descriptions of homosexuality and transgenderism. Some of these books detail the use of different pronouns from the traditional he, she. Going further, some of these books actually explicitly describe sexual encounters between minors of the same gender. This is in public schools. Parents, everyone, everyone has an agenda for your children. You've just got to make sure that your agenda, which should be in line with God's agenda, is speaking louder to them than the world's agenda. The secular ideology that's so pervasive in our culture is trying to indoctrinate the next generation in an effort to promote their hedonistic ideas and to normalize, that's the important thing, to normalize distorted views and actions related to sexuality and gender. That's what's going on. And it's actually a brilliant move on their part because if you can get them when they're young, by the time our children are our age, they won't think twice about it. It's just kind of a normal part of human beings and society. We've got to get off the bench. We've got to stand up for truth for such a time as this to be all in when it comes to training our children and exposing wickedness. Some of y'all have been parents far longer than we have been. We've been parents for about 20 years now. And just in those two decades, we have seen more of a normalization of homosexuality. What used to be scandalous and not even discussed is now openly promoted and almost expected. How many movies or TV shows can you watch without that being a part of it in today's culture? It's on mainstream commercials. It's on the streets of downtown Greenville. We're living in a modern version of literally Sodom and Gomorrah in many ways where sin is openly demonstrated and celebrated. And this really should outrage us. Not only for how it's affecting us and what we're, what we're seeing, but then also what our children are being exposed to. Well, let's transition for a little bit. We know that homosexuality is sinful and in fact it's an abomination to the Lord. But what about those who have homosexual desires but are not acting them out in a physical way? Is that wrong? Well, based on the verses we talked about, it is, because it's the desire, it's the intent that's also sinful and wrong. Now, to be sure, and we want to be clear on this, there's really two different camps, if you will, when it comes to homosexual desires. Two different camps. On the one hand, you've got people, even evangelical Christians, that struggle with homosexual desire. And they recognize that it's wrong. They recognize that it's sinful. And what are they doing? 
they're coming before the Lord on bended knee and they're saying, Lord, take this away. Much like we would if we struggle with anger or if we struggle with a gossiping tongue. Lord, I know this is wrong. I know my motivation is not right. Change me, cleanse me, take this away. Help me by your Spirit's help to mortify this desire. And so there's people on the homosexual desire camp that are genuinely coming before the Lord on bended knee, and praise the Lord for that. That should be the right response, isn't it? As we deal with wrong desires and sinful desires that we have. But then there's those in the broad evangelical camp who don't believe that. They believe that only the physical act of homosexuality is wrong and not the desire. Proponents of this false ideology are called side B gay Christianity. Their voice is heard and promoted through the revoice movement of recent years. Of course, what this leads to is very problematic. If you're truly struggling with homosexual desires and not acting them out, they believe nothing's wrong. For it's not the desire they say that's sinful, but the physical act. So if nothing's wrong, there's nothing to confess. There's nothing to repent of. They don't believe that desires are wrong. Although, as we've seen today very clearly in Scripture, homosexual desires, other desires, right, that we have that are sinful are not right and should be put off. We're to put off the old, including the old sinful desires, and put on the new now that we're robed in the righteousness of Christ. Well, let's get thirdly to the heart of the matter. And I can see that my time is running short. So what we're going to do, I'm going to try to get through this section. uh, And then next week, we'll talk about how to biblically deal with and help those that are struggling with gender confusion and homosexual lifestyles. Okay? So let me get to this section. This is the third section on your handout. It's what I've called the heart of the matter. As I've studied the subject on gender confusion, which includes transgenderism and homosexuality, it's obvious to me that not only are both sinful, which we know from Scripture, but both are idolatrous. What do I mean by that? Well, in the case of gender confusion, it's discontentment with the gender that God has given a person. In an effort to supposedly correct this, the person believes he knows better than God and can change his biological gender that God gave him or her at conception. In the case of homosexuality, the person believes his or her sexual affairs should not be limited to the opposite sex and in the confines of marriage as God intended. Thus, a person can broaden their horizons and have sexual relations with those of the same gender. Of course, this view is wrong, but don't just take my word for it. Let's look at what Scripture says. Let's begin with the fact that God is sovereign and we are not. And, though, and so he accordingly governs the affairs of men and women according to his perfect and pleasing will. Numerous passages speak to this. Listen to this one, Colossians 1, 16 through 17. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things, listen to this, 
were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Notice at the, at the end of verse 16, all things were created through him and for him. So even in the case we could say of genders, the two genders are to be for him, or in other words, to reflect his glory as the sovereign creator of those two genders. He created man and woman with different characteristics so that uh, procreation could occur. God allows procreation to occur through union of man and woman, not in any other way. And why? Again, it's for him. We also see sovereignty of God displayed in Isaiah 45, verses 7 through 9. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Shower, O heavens, from above, and let the clouds rain down righteousness. Let the earth open that salvation and righteousness may bear fruit. Let the earth cause them both to sprout. I, the Lord, have created it. Woe to him who strives with him who formed him a pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who formed it, what are you making? Or your work has no handles? Woe to him who says to a father, what are you begetting? Or to a woman, with what are you in labor? What's being stated here? God made all things. And he made all things for our good, we could say from Romans 8, and for his glory. And how dare we, as the finite creatures, question the infinite creator? He is the potter, we are the clay. Job 38, 4, who are you to question my wisdom? Were you there when I made the world? So we can see from these passages, there's no question of God's sovereignty. And as it relates to gender and to sexuality, we are to accept ourselves as being who and how God made us and to function within our God-given design. To do otherwise is idolatry. Turn with me briefly if you have your Bibles. Romans 1. I want to look at a really a succession of verses here that really is important with our topic today as we conclude. Romans 1, beginning in verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. And listen to this, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. What's happened here? They claim to be wise in their own eyes and they became fools. And then what happens? Well, verse 24, therefore, God gave them up to the lust of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So the result of idolatry in this case was that God allowed them to what? Dishonor themselves by giving them over to their wicked and sinful desires. And then we read further, 
Go with me here, verses 26 and 27. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations with those that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty of their error. What do we see here? We see in these verses that homosexuality ensues when men and women are given over to dishonorable passions. One commentator writes, God judges fallen man's perversion of the, of the divinely ingrained instinct to worship by giving sinful human beings over to the perversion of other instincts from their proper functions. Scripture views all homosexual actions in this light And he says this, the consequence is degradation of the body, domination by lust, and disintegration of what is truly natural. So as you look at Romans 1, what's transpired? First of all, people claim to be wise in their own eyes, which then led to idolatry, which then led to God giving them up to dishonorable passions, which led to the fruit of it all, the bad fruit of it all, the rotten fruit of it all, homosexuality. So where does homosexuality actually go back to? Where does it begin? Claiming to be wiser than God. Now I'd like to get into, I'm not going to be able to today, but we'll pick up here next week. What's a biblical response to this? Uh, Many of us know people that are really struggling with gender confusion, really struggling with homosexual desires. How do we respond biblically to those people? That's where we'll begin next week, but let's pray. God in heaven, we thank you, Lord, that you have created male and female. And Lord, you created us in our image. We pray that you would help us very simply as godly men and as godly women to live in ways that would bear testimony to your faithfulness, to your God-given design even with our lives, that we might give glory and honor to your name. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.